Welcome to Wholesale Change. Brought to you by Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents. And if you're on this call, this webinar, this podcast, you probably are a wholesale change agent. I want to welcome in my business partner, my trusted friend, my ally in today's debate for the Thrilla in Colorado, the doctor of distribution, Jonathan Bine, PhD. How are you today, Jonathan? I'm fine, Ian. How are you? I'm doing great. So uh, we're going to have some fun today. The topic is, will marketplaces kill company-specific websites? And if you've seen any of the promotional material, you'll know that Jonathan and I have different opinions about this. So it should be a, a lively debate, and we're looking forward to it. Uh, but before we get started, I want to thank Miramar Technologies, who's the sponsor of today's episode. Uh, Jason Capshaw, who's on our team, is one of our resident experts on e-commerce and development. Miramar Technologies is Jason's go-to software team for custom work because they're smart, they know how to get things done, and they're transparent. Miramar serves the distribution industry and understands the challenges distributors face in their digital roadmaps. Uh, and actually, just as a side note, when I was a distribution executive, I also used Miramar, so I know they're good. They have successfully executed mission-critical projects for both small and large distributors where others have failed. You can find their information at miramar.tech. Their team is available this afternoon and always to field questions, talk about estimates, audits, and developer hiring that you need to get things done. They're open about costs. They have rigorous standards for communication, and they're very easy to work with. If you need to modernize your digital offerings, you should reach out to these guys. Again, in your browser, type miramar.tech, not .com, miramar.tech. Tech. Jonathan, what do you think about all these new domain uh, endings like uh, .tech? I think, it's, I think it's great to be specific rather than generic, and it's indicative of who this company is. So, yeah. terrific. That's kind of cool. Yeah. All right, good. So, there's their contact information, and uh, this will be on the slides that are archived as well. But uh, let's jump into today's, today's topic, which is, will marketplaces replace company-specific websites? So, you know, we thought, first of all, we should say or give you a definition of what a marketplace actually is. All of us have used them, probably. Um, I mean, anybody who's used Amazon, which seems to be everybody, knows, how to, knows that it's a marketplace now. You're not just getting products fulfilled from Amazon distribution centers. You're also getting them from what are called third-party sellers. Those are companies that sell through Amazon. But in a broader sense, a marketplace is an e-commerce site. This is from, from Wikipedia, where products or services are provided by multiple third parties, but the transactions are processed by the marketplace operator. So if you look at Uber, you know, you've got a whole bunch of individuals driving their own cars, but all the transactions are arranged on uber.com. And the same is true on eBay, which used to be all used merchandise, but now has a whole bunch of new merchandise, uh, Airbnb for rental properties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this notion of aggregating supply to create incredible amounts of assortment uh, is a great way to bring shoppers. I mean, all of us like to simplify our lives. And one way to do that is to be able to get a wide variety of disparate things easily and conveniently and enormous amounts of assortment enable that. Now, uh, Jonathan, you wanted to talk though about how distributors are actually increasing their e-commerce efforts and successes as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if part of what we're discussing is marketplaces versus e-commerce, I thought it'd be good to sort of level set with what we're seeing on both Adoption of e-commerce, meaning transactional e-commerce, as well as revenue um, going through e-commerce. So we do a, an annual update. In fact, we're getting ready to do it for 2020, um, publish it probably in the next 30 days or so, of the, the companies that have adopted e-commerce. And we, we're looking exhaustively at distributors who are 50 million and above. So we've looked at about 4,000 websites. We track the ones that don't have it every year. 
And then we've looked uh, selectively or sampling basis for 10 to 50 million. There's many more 10 to $50 million distributors. And what you see is um, certainly for the lower end, the, the, the percentage who are adopting e-commerce is increasing rapidly. Um, in 2019, you see the, the 50 to $100 million sector went from like 14% to 23%. Uh, the 100 to 500 million went from 19% to 27%. So there's a, there's about a 38% compounded growth across all of these sectors in terms of adoption. Define adoption, um, Jonathan. When I say adoption, meaning they, they now can offer a transactional e-commerce site. Of any kind. Of, of, of any kind, right. They, they can take an order on their site. And there are reasons for this. There are reasons why we're seeing an acceleration. Uh, I think one is the platforms have gotten cheaper. They've gotten better. Data has gotten way better. I would describe the industry as kind of at data 1.0. There have been a lot of efforts in the last several years through groups and buying groups and co-ops and associations to create content. So all of this is bringing the cost down to to deploy an e-commerce site or to deploy an e-commerce store. Quite, we had a question about e-commerce versus e-business. My definition is e-commerce refers to something that goes in a shopping cart on a website. And the broader concept of e-business would include e-commerce, meaning shopping cart, would include EDI, punch out, would include something like you know order automation, orders coming in through email. So um, so I think we're going to continue to see growth. I'll be curious to see where it comes out in, when we when we update this next month. Um, but there is an acceleration. And if you, if you go to the next slide, this is going to show the revenue. And one of the things we've been tracking is the percentage that have more than 10% of their revenue going through e-commerce. And you see a fairly steady trend towards uh, distributors that have more than 10%. It's a bit of a magic number um, in terms of, of a maturity meaning it's hard to get to 10% without doing something around marketing. To get to 20%, you've got to get really good at marketing. And to get you know, at 30 or 40%, as some of the respondents in our survey are, you've really created a marketing machine around generating demand. I would also note that when distributors get to, let's say, above 25%, they're almost certainly taking market share. And I don't just mean e-commerce market share. I mean overall market share from other distributors. What percentage of distributors do you think are at 25% or higher? Any, any idea? I, I have the data, and I, I wish I could recall it off the end. I, I maybe should have shown that. I should also note, by the way, this, this data that we're looking at is based on our survey. So there's a bias in who takes our survey, as right. opposed to the prior slide, which is exhaustive for distributors above 50 million. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it's, there's clearly momentum in the distribution market towards e-commerce or e-business, however you want to define it. I think, you know, the, the challenge is that it's just not enough, in my opinion. You know, you've got uh, Amazon business that is growing at a ferocious rate. There's a Royal Bank of Canada analyst who thinks that uh, Amazon business is going to be at $52 billion in gross merchandise revenue by 2023. The guys over at Applico, um, in fact, you should write this down. There's a, the Applico specializes in marketplaces. Uh, they're founded by Alex Moazid and Nick Johnson, but they've got a, at applicoinc.com, they've got an overview of Amazon business that I think is really impressive. They just did it for 2020, but they're predicting that the gross merchandise volume through Amazon business is going to be $75 billion by 2023. Now, you know, they've got some metrics behind that. It's not out of thin air. The problem is, 
Amazon doesn't have to break out the sales of Amazon business, although at that rate, they're going to have to soon because it's going to be more than 10% of their, of their revenues. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the uh, and they, and Amazon just did this promo, promo. It was really interesting. And they had the, the head of uh, worldwide procurement for Intel. They've also done this with Siemens and Stanford and others where, you know, some of the most demanding procurement companies in the world are actually, you know, relying on, um, on Amazon business. So, and, and I think the reason really is that is the skew count, right? So you've got these just incredible uh, skew counts that are, you know, wildly impressive by any standard. So uh, if you look at Amazon business, they've got something like 350 million active SKUs. You know, Walmart's got 52 million. I mean, these are just numbers that, that you can hardly relate to. Now, you know, obviously Amazon is also retail goods, but there's a lot of crossover with Amazon business. We don't know the exact count on Amazon business, although they do a good job in the applicable paper of estimating what that is. Walmart has a whole bunch of uh, B2B SKUs. In fact, uh, you and I got an email this morning, Jonathan, we can't uh, disclose the name of the company, but they're getting unbelievable growth in a product that was traditionally sold only through distribution through walmart.com and Amazon. I mean, their growth is off the charts. And they were, you know, very, very much a stalwart uh, distribution-only type of seller, manufacturer. But you know, times have changed, and so they've invested in e-commerce capabilities to sell the platforms. Truepar, which I've used here, is a uh, use, which I'm using as an example, it just sells material handling products. They've got eight million SKUs just in material handling. eBay Business and Industrials got seven million, and you know, you compare that to a non-marketplace, uh, which is Granger. And, you know, Granger is a fantastic company, very solid operator, uh, and they always had the widest assortment of products. And, you know, they've clearly expanded their value proposition, so they're not just about assortment. But this is still a core part, you know, one of the legs of the stool that keeps Granger Granger. Um, and by comparison, they have a very small assortment these days, which is why Zorro, uh, a Granger division, is actually building a marketplace, I think. Any comment on this, Jonathan? Well, two things. Uh, first of all, according to your definition, the purchases that are that are migrating, at least in a B2B world, towards marketplaces are going to be the simple transactions. And probably no matter how you cut it, almost by definition, the, the majority of the transactions are going to be for A and B items. So in a sense, um, do I really care whether there's 4 million SKUs versus 350 million or, or 10 million? versus 350 million, if what I'm primarily doing is A and B items, that's point one. Point two, um, these counts, I don't think are deduped. So if we were to look at the unique number of SKUs um, on an Amazon, I don't think that it comes up to 350 million. I could be wrong. Um, I'll give you a couple of data points for why I think that. First of all, there are about 3 million manufacturers in the United States. I recognize this is, you know, this is global. It's not just the United States, but that's an important metric. 3 million distributors, I mean, 3 million manufacturers in the United States. So that's that means each one is producing over 100 and some odd products. Uh, so I think there's a lot of duplication in there. And then the other question is, how much is enough? So I know that you believe that, you know, assortment is really going to drive the day. I think assortment beyond a certain level is less relevant to customers. Um, so that's that's my sentiment around these impressive SKU numbers. Yeah. So uh, look, I mean, I think there is some du duplication. Um, I, th I think, uh, uh, but it doesn't matter because you've got, you know, so much 
more assortment that whether it's 350 million or it's 100 million, which would be a lot more duplication than I think there is, you know, that's still vastly more than any distributor has. I mean, order more than an order of magnitude, like two orders of magnitude. And so, you know, these are, these are incredible differences in skew counts. And, and I just don't think that distributors are going to compete with single store assortments. Now, you know, the, I'm not predicting all distributors are going to go out of business, but I do think these companies are going to take share. I mean, look, you know, distributors don't create demand any more than retailers do. I mean, we don't vet products. Demand is out there and then we serve it and fight for our piece of the pie. And if Amazon business is going to become, what I think it's $235 billion by the end of this decade, which is what World Bank of Canada is predicting, that's going to come out of the pockets of distributors because they're not creating new demand. No, now, no question. But um, then the other thing to remember is how, how big is the how big is the distribution as the part of as the portion of GDP today? So it's seven trillion yeah. by the end of the decade. You know, maybe it's eight trillion. So you're talking about two hundred thirty-five billion among eight trillion. Um, I, that's what a couple percent, I think. Yeah, but let me, I want to get to that in a minute. Uh, we've had some really interesting questions and I asked permission to use this gentleman's name, so it's okay. Uh, Jason Hine, who is one of the e leading e-commerce experts working within distribution and a marketplace expert, he's, he's, he's putting some really provocative questions forward. I think it's really good. First of all, he, he agrees with uh, Applico's number of, uh, I think, what did I say, 75 billion by 2023, more so than Royal Bank of Canada. Uh, he's asking, first of all, or, or stating, the, that people buy on Amazon business because it's familiar, not because it's good. And so I, I think that's an interesting point. I don't know that I agree that it's not good because I think operationally they're so sound. I mean, their third parties really performed to a high level or they're not able to sell anymore. But certainly when you introduce Amazon business into a procurement uh, or as a procurement solution to a big company or in any company, people already know how to use it because they shop on Amazon all the time. So I think that is a huge uh, you know, advantage. On the other hand, he says, I love this. If a skew is loaded in a selection forest and customers can't find it, is it truly available? So he's a philosopher as well as an e-commerce expert, but it's a good point, right? I mean, can you find the skew? Is the search, is the search there? So uh, I think Jason believes that uh, Amazon businesses search isn't that good in terms of well, he says, He's specifically referring to their product discovery experience. Um, so I'm sorting through a bunch of comments from Jason. So Jason, I hope I'm getting this right. But, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I mean, Amazon works fine for me. I, I, I'm not a big fan of Amazon for various reasons, but I buy there because it's just the best solution much of the time. Uh, I'm able to, um, you know, find what I'm looking for. But I do think it's fair to say that, you know, as you, as you move towards more obscure products, things that are harder to find or things that require configuration or are more complex, then the quality of the search experience falls off dramatically, and that's going to leave some white space for distributors to move into. So thank you, Jason. That's a really, really great question, a really great set of, of, of questions and statements. So let's look at the major United States or U.S., really North American, in some cases global, B2B marketplaces. And I took some liberties here as Jonathan. I'll point that out before Jonathan does, because not all of these claim to be B2B. But uh, Amazon business is really the, you know, the premier, it's the gold standard in marketplaces, but I wanted to share some thinking about some of these. I won't read through all of these, but I'm going to go through Amazon all the way, you know, in terms of B2B experience, I'd say they're medium high, right? I mean, they're not a Zora, which is a part of Granger. So I say in terms of B2B, you know, Zora or Granger's off the charts, 
But Amazon Business is learning very quickly, and they're stealing a lot of employees from uh, classic distributors, and they've got a lot of employees from Zorro. And I get, I get the question sometimes, do they have salespeople? And the answer is yes. They call them customer advisors or senior customer advisors, but they've got people who can go out and speak the language of procurement because they hired them from distributors who are good at procurement. So they do have salespeople. What, to what degree are they a threat to their own sellers? Now, I think, and I've always thought Amazon business is a significant threat to its own sellers. And, you know, there were rumors that that was true. But a couple of weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article that had very detailed information, including quite a bit of evidence to show that Amazon was using third-party seller data to introduce private label SKUs to compete with them. Now, Amazon's disputing this, right? But the problem for them is their general counsel testified in front of Congress last year that they specifically were not doing that. And now the Wall Street Journal is reporting that they did. And Congress is threatening to subpoena Jeff Bezos to come in and testify about it. So, you well, know, I think Ian also, Ian also, I mean, we have that we've, we've seen a few data points from some of our customers. One of our customers shared that they, this yeah, is yeah, a well, company. Let's, 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 let's not say anything that's going to require us to disclose somebody's identity. If it's not going to require do. anybody's okay. identity. All right. Ian, come on. Um, so one of our customers w- was, is doing multiple marketplace experiments and they were tracking for Amazon what portion of SKUs Amazon was also selling directly, meaning competing. So in 2017, that number was 20%. Mm-hmm. And so whatever, whatever this distributor was selling, Amazon was selling directly 20%. In 2018, it was 37%. So you don't have to cr- have a crystal ball to see where that's going. And it culminates in this article in, in the Wall Street Journal and, and the hullabaloo around this whole thing. We knew it was going to happen. Yeah, well, I think it is happening. I think and I think it's a real risk. I think the reality is this is the Achilles heel for Amazon and Amazon business because if uh, if no for distributors and retailers, not for manufacturers, for the most part. I mean, I, well, I, should, I guess if it's if it's private label goods, it is manufacturers too. But I, I think you know for retailers and distributors, there's a pretty good case to be made that Amazon or Amazon business are just learning your sales patterns from your data, right? Um, and over time, they can take those SKUs first party anytime they want to. Now, I think Amazon has a unique ability to manage their stock price because they can drive sales growth by assigning more third parties, or they can take those parties direct and take that margin to themselves. And so they can manage their earnings in a legal way, but manage their earnings uh, going forward by choosing whether or not to grow with sales or grow with gross margin. And no company's ever had that ability before. I mean, imagine if you're a distribution executive and you said, man, I think the second quarter is going to be a little bit light. So what the heck, let's bump up gross margins by 150 basis points without raising any prices. Distributors can't do that. Amazon can just by buying around their their third-party sellers. And if you're FBA, fulfillment by Amazon, where you're shipping their product to their warehouses and they're fulfilling them, then, you know, to me, it's like, holy cow, what value are you adding as a distributor? Because all they have to do is change the PO instead of writing your name on the top, write it to the manufacturer whose products you sent them and take you out of the loop immediately. So I, I just don't understand why distributors think that they can hand over all of, you know, most of the distribution tasks, demand generation or uh, order uh, processing and even order fulfillment and think that they're still adding value to justify the margin in the long run. What do you think of that, Jonathan? Well, I think the issue with Amazon business or any of these places is that they are aggregating demand. To your point, they're not creating demand. And in the, in the particular case of Amazon business, 
the terms are onerous enough that, at least today, that it's less attractive um, for a, a large swath of distributors than either you know traditional field sales or trying to, to go it alone on your own e-commerce site. Mm-hmm. Most of the distributors, as far as I know, that are that are selling on Amazon are starting with long tail. Of course, there are some that have gone all in, but those are fewer and further between. So I think it's going to be, it's, it's a question of what's attractive to the customer versus what's attractive to the distributor. And I think you and I come out in different places on this. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of what, what you're pointing out correctly, I believe, um, modulo Jason Hines insightful comments is that it's very attractive for the customer to have access to this massive assortment. And if we've been buying simple products as consumers on Amazon, that converts over to the Amazon business to a large extent. I wouldn't say totally. But then the other perspective is where are the distributors going to go? And to the extent that Amazon is merely aggregating demand, that's the real value add. But But the other terms are onerous. It may be a less attractive value proposition. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, we'll see, right? Because it's not going to, these issues are going to continue to play out. Um, one of the things that Jason Hine pointed out, we're going to have to have him on a, as a host next time, <laughs> uh, is he said, you know, the issue isn't that Amazon, Amazon was just looking at best-selling SKUs because that's public information. And that's true. They published that. I mean, if you're an Amazon seller, you can see what SKUs are, are, are hot sellers but they're actually using data about, you know, margins, et cetera, to pick their own private label SKUs. I agree with that. Uh, we also had a question, is Zora really a marketplace? I know it's an endless aisle, but I thought they were the seller of record for all of what they sell. Yeah, that was the case, but not anymore. They're actually building a marketplace. And I've talked to them, we've talked to them, and, uh, um, you know, they have every intentions, I think, of competing with uh, Amazon business. Uh, well, I don't want to put words in their mouth. That's my impression. But anyway, so there are some other there are some other players here. So Alibaba is setting up a B2B marketplace. Uh, they used to be really, I would say, manufacturer to retailer, manufacturer to distributor, but now they're building a distributor to customer marketplace. Uh, eBay business supply. So they were in the B2B space for a while. They got out. Now they're back. Um, not just used products, but new products. Google shopping. So Google has gotten drawn into the marketplace wars. And the reason for that is that Amazon is standing up Alexa. And Alexa is a way of ordering by voice. But if you have an Alexa unit, you don't just order by voice, you search by voice. That means that it's threatening Google's search revenues. And in our opinion, at least in my opinion, the way that they're countering that is they're building their own marketplace. It's called Google Shopping. You can buy through Google as a, as a genuine marketplace, and you can also buy uh, at the individual stores if you'd like. Now, I think it's important to notice Alibaba, eBay, and Google are not merchants themselves. They don't have product managers, they don't have distribution centers, they don't uh, have delivery fleets. Amazon Business, Walmart, and Zorro, all are merchants. And that's why you see the threat to sellers as you know very high with Walmart, in our opinion, very high with Amazon, and high with Zorro, uh, and low to very low with these other three. So I, we just don't think they're, you know, if you're not a merchant, it's just a safer place to shop. Of course, the volume is all in Amazon business and Walmart right now. Now, Walmart uh, is, does not claim to be a B2B marketplace. And, and for that matter, neither, neither does Google. But both of them have a lot of B2B products on there. Now, Google's interesting because they don't apparently understand the B2B market. I mean, their smart speaker is called Google Home, which is not 
the name you choose for your smart speaker if you're trying to get into the B2B space. So they don't apparently realize that the B2B space is much larger than retail. Um, Walmart is collaborating with Google and trying to develop their own voice technology. We haven't asked Nora about that yet. But anyway, this slide's in the deck. I won't keep dragging you through it, but uh, this will give you some insight into the B2B marketplaces that are out there. So, Ian, I think part of what this points to, and you're, you're going to talk about it on this next slide, is there are multiple models for marketplaces. Um, yeah. So, perfect lead-in. Please continue. Yeah, right. And, I, and this is, you know, so, so first of all, we want to talk about, you know, marketplaces as we typically know them. And those, those are hybrid marketplaces where the seller has their own merchandise and they have third parties that sell on their platform. So that is Amazon, Walmart, Zorro, and we think TruePark. Third-party marketplaces have no first-party sales, so they don't carry any inventory. They don't buy and sell themselves. Everything's through third parties. So that's Alibaba, eBay Business Supply, and Google Shopping. And this is a really important distinction. Uh, as we mentioned, it you know speaks to the threat of these merchants or non-merchants displacing your SKUs. You know, so I have to tell you, if I was running one of the hybrid marketplaces, like uh, if I was at Zorro, uh, not that they need my advice, but if I was, I would consider working out some kind of very specific policy that spoke exactly to this issue about, you know, because if, if Amazon business said we will never, we, we not only will we swear that we'll never introduce another product uh, using your data, but we're actually going to stop all assortment of our assortment building of our own through Amazon business, provided that you, you meet the following conditions. It might give some peace of mind. Now, I think there are practical reasons they can't do that. I think, you know, just this notion of managing their, stock price and managing assortment and availability and service for customers uh, probably precludes them from saying that. But at the same time, I think that leaves space for one of these other marketplaces who uh, offer more trust to be, to compete with the, the people who are winning right now. I think it would be really hard to disclaim your way to getting other sellers to feel ultimately comfortable. Um, I mean, the, the example you just gave, you know, somebody, somebody could say that, but if I'm, if I'm a seller looking at a marketplace to, to sell on um, and I've seen the Amazon precedent, and even if I hadn't seen the Amazon precedent, it's not going to believe it. I'm just not going to believe it yeah. because the, the reporting yeah. actually a, a professor at the university where I teach, I teach part-time at the business school at university of Colorado sent an article around like, look at Amazon using the analytics to figure this out. It's like, well, you don't really need analytics. You just need reporting, right? You just need best-selling SKUs if you're Amazon or, or the first party marketplace to figure out, what you want to sell directly, right? Right. So it really would contravene the the goal of having a first party marketplace in the first place if you couldn't harvest this data to figure out where you should be selling more direct. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to clear confusion, there are uh, and and you know we're not we're not gurus. We think we know what we're talking about, but we're pretty sure that these single vertical endless aisles on the right. Uh, do not carry third-party merchandise, and yet they have assortments, and you know they're very broad, probably in the millions. So, Rock Auto. Uh, so I spent some time on there. I didn't find sales from other auto auto parts distributors. I just found sales that appear to be from manufacturers. Uh, same with Webstrand Store. So if somebody knows better, please feel 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 free to clarify in the comments um, or to send us a note afterwards. But it looks to us like. These are just very, very, very broad line online distributors. And so people may think of them as marketplaces, but a marketplace has third-party sales, and we didn't find any uh, when we looked at these two sites. Now, there's, go ahead. 
Chuck. Well, and there's another one that you and I've spoken out spoken about that we we chose to exclude here. Yeah. Um, which is a company in our backyard here called GHX. I think it stands mm-hmm. for Global Healthcare Exchange. Yeah. And and they were started originally as a consortium of you know Baxter, J and J, Medtronic, players like that for selling really consumable products to medical right. providers, primarily hospitals, but also clinics and physicians' offices. You know, that's a great example where there's many third party at this point. It was initially a small number, like 10 or 11 or 12, but now there's many uh, third parties selling through GHX. Hmm. There's not a distributor in there per se. So it's not like there's a Owens Minor or, or some player like that in there that's a medical distributor selling. It's, it's really manufactured directly to uh, medical providers. Okay. Um, they've tracked their revenue year over year that goes through that marketplace. And it's just staggering. I, last I looked, they were, they were processing $50 billion of transactions a year. Really? Wow. That's incredible. So, um, so I think there, there are other models that, that look at, um, and we, we got communication just yesterday. Um, I think maybe somebody may be on the webcast here today from a company that's, that's doing manufacture to, to end customer. So that's another model that's a little bit not represented on this slide very much. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first of all, just look at these names that are moving into dis, into B2B product distribution. I mean, all these, you know, Amazon, Walmart, uh, Zorro as a marketplace, Alibaba, eBay, and Google. Okay. When they move into your industry, it's generally not good for the incumbents. It's just not. I mean, these are just some of the largest, most well-capitalized, aggressive, and sophisticated companies in the world, they're coming after B2B sales. So there's going to be some kind of a shakeout to some level. And then there's the sourcing marketplace that's operated by Berkshire Hathaway called Berkshire eSupply, used to be called Production Tool Supply. Now, Berkshire has bought several distributors over the years, so they're not uh, oblivious to the segment. But Berkshire eSupply is an interesting model because they have, I think, about a million SKUs. They started off as a metalworking house uh, many years ago in Michigan. But they've got a very wide assortment now. And let's say that Jonathan and I run Jonathan and Ian's wholesale company, and we've got 20,000 SKUs in the little branch uh, in Denver, um, and we can't afford a website. Well, we can go to Berkshire eSupply, and for some relatively nominal fee, I mean, I think it's fifteen dollars or $20,000, um, don't, don't quote me, they uh, will build a website for us, they'll white label it, and we can add up to a million of their products to our website throw in our 20,000 products. And now we've got a million, 20,000 products on a website. Um, and it'll be www.ianandjonathanwholesale.com. We put that on our business cards and go, you know, hand them out and say, Hey, we're, we're in the e-commerce business and they've got several, I don't know, a dozen, half a dozen distribution centers around the country and they'll handle fulfillment for us under our name. So that's a supplier side or sourcing side marketplace. That's also new. And it's a way for smaller distributors to, get into the game, you know, quickly and, and get a good, assort, a great assortment and a, a good website quickly. We're, by the way, we don't have commercial arrangements with any company on this webcast except Miramar. So we're just talking straight. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, the, this marketplace development on the selling side, the customer facing side and marketplace development on the buyer side, I mean, that really is the next expression of internet technology. Uh, and it's an example of it revolutionizing industry. Now there are some, we talked about this yesterday, so we're looking for, for some examples, but uh, there are some interesting sort of interim pieces of technology, like 
there's something that Google offers and there are, so there's under development. Ian, could, could we actually hold on that for a sec? I, I okay. know, I know, I know you want to go there. I'd actually like to go to the next slide and then, and then come, come over to that in another model as well. Is that okay? Okay. Yeah. So, so my critique of the, the primary models that Ian has shared there, where you have a number of distributors selling on a site, um, sort of follows this analogy from computer manufacturers in the 1990s. And so there's, um, on the left, we've got the suppliers, Intel and AMD. In the middle, we've got the competitors. And by the way, that is a fraction of the list of competitors of, of PC manufacturers in the 1990s. And on the right, we've got the buyers, the consumers, and the businesses. And this is a model where the suppliers, Intel and AMD, cleaned up. I think actually Intel's stock um, rose directly correlated with what happened in, in the PC industry. Uh, those were back in the days of Andy Grove. The buyers, whether it was consumers or businesses, just ate up, you know, having all this competition. Um, but the players in the middle didn't win so much, and that's why there's been so much consolidation. Uh, IBM around, I, I think the term PC was coined by IBM. They sold off their PC business in 2008 or something to Lenovo. Um, Compaq got acquired by DEC, which got acquired by HP. A number of these brands went away. So I think in any, in any setting like this, the question is who captures the value? And I'm convinced that in the models that we've focused on so far, that the that the marketplace provider is capturing, capturing the value. In, in, in this analogy, the marketplace provider is, is the supplier, if you will. Um, I'm convinced that the buyers will capture the value, but I'm just not convinced that the distributors are going to capture the value in that type of a model as much. And so I mentioned this because Ian wanted to discuss a couple of other models that I think are more, far more intriguing. Thoughts on this, Ian, before we shift to those other models? Well, I think you could use any number of examples. I mean, when Home Depot entered the hardware industry, hardware stores and staff to houses got hurt, right? And so there are always winners and losers when there's industry consolidation. I think, you know, the suppliers in this case really are a split between manufacturers and distributors. And then the winners are going to be the marketplaces and clearly the consumers. And I think there's going to be a shakeout among distributors. I just don't, I just don't think that Distributors are moving fast enough. And I, I, my personal belief is that distributors need their own third-party marketplace that they control. But I, I just, having talked to a lot of associations and distribution executives, I don't think they realize the platform is burning to the degree that it is. And I mean, people have been predicting disruption and doom for the distribution industry forever. I mean, I was around when the internet came along and people were talking about disintermediation. At the time, I said that was nonsense. I held, I, I used to say, Granger's going to go away when Home Depot goes away because, you know, we, we are actually ideally suited to take advantage of the internet, blah, 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 blah. I used to go speak at a graduate school about that. And I would handle questions from the, these uh, MBA students who were claiming that Granger was going to go away. I was at Granger at the time. I just thought it was not, I thought it was not true and it wasn't. I think disruption is here now. And sometimes industries get very thoroughly disrupted and, and it just, they don't see it coming. I mean, I don't think the executives at Kodak walk through those plants making, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of, of linear feet of film every year and thought, boy, 10 years from now, this could all be gone, right? Uh, but industries get fundamentally disrupted. And I think that's what's happening. I think a marketplace is just a superior model. I think the only way to compete is to have your own marketplace. And I don't believe, I mean, I'm going to advocate like, like, like mad for it. 
I don't think that at least for now, distributors realize the the existential threat that marketplaces present. And and I, so earlier on, you had said, well, even if Amazon business is two hundred something billion, um, the distribution industry will be eight trillion by the end of the decade, right? Well, okay, but Amazon business isn't going to be the only only marketplace. You know, you, Google's building a marketplace, Walmart's building a marketplace, Granger through Zorro's building a marketplace. They're going to be others. These these marketplaces combined, I think, are going to take trillions out of that eight trillion dollars in in revenue, and it's going to be all the easy to process, high profit transactions that they're going to soap up because they're terrible at anything that involves you know humans as part of the value value delivery process. And distributors, a lot of them are going to survive. I'm not predicting doom and gloom. But they're going to be the ones who become very high service, not just customer service, but services. And they're going to learn how to sell complex products that require configuration, et cetera. But there is a shakeout coming in distribution. And, you know, there's just, there's just, there's too much, you know, momentum with these huge organizations. I didn't even mention Alibaba a minute ago. I mean, these, these are massive organizations and all of them are building marketplaces that sell B2B products. And they're growing at ferocious rates. So I looked at Amazon, all of Amazon, and of course they don't break out very much because they don't have to, and so they shouldn't. Uh, but Amazon businesses, or excuse me, Amazon's total revenues through the first quarter of 2020 were 48% bigger than two years ago. So that company grew almost half of its size off of its, you know, it was it was $200 billion then, right? So it grew 48% in two years as a company. And 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 their their growth probably outpaced, you know, the combined growth of the top 50 distributors. I'm guessing, I don't know, but, you know, you're talking about just these, these massive changes, you know, Walmart's first quarter e-commerce sales were up 75%. And you can just, you know, but, but Ian, you, you can't, you, you can't just look at what's happening with, with, with Walmart and say, it means this for distribution. You and I both know right. it. There's a huge portion of Walmart that's retail. I so agree. I think, I think there are a couple of questions here. One is, what does we know that distribution often follows retail, right? And, and a lot of different things that happen. Wholesale follows retail, right? Yep. But how does what's happening in retail predict? When does it predict? What does the adoption curve look like? You just mentioned you heard, you know, in, in circa two thousand. Well, you know, e-commerce is going to put Granger out of business, and you're defending right. that. Twenty years later, I'm showing you slides that say, well, you know, half of my respondents, not half of the industry, are at ten percent e-commerce revenue. So there's an adoption curve. And I think one of the questions here is, is how the adoption curve for e-commerce relates to the adoption curve for marketplaces. Is it the case that, wow, it took 20 years to get to what I think is kind of a tipping point this year, accelerated by COVID. It took 20 years to get to that. And we've been hearing every year, you know, it's this year, it's this year, it's this year. It's, re it's really finally happening uh, in terms of e-commerce getting to, to scale. So do we say, well, it's going to take 20 years for marketplaces, or do we say, well, because we've gotten to this critical mass, this momentum with e-commerce, that that's going to predict a faster adoption of marketplaces by distributors? I think that's a, I think that's a key question here. My, my sense is it, it is going to predict a faster adoption, but still a lot of people are just experimenting with, with what they're doing, right? From the, from the distribution standpoint, they're saying, Okay, let's let's try a couple of different marketplaces. Let's try long tail. Let's try you know ob, obsolete and, and excess. Um, some people are going all in, but I think the, the adoption curve 
is is going to be over the course of the decade. And there's still going to be plenty of room left for people to make money with their own e-commerce site. And well, I think, you, look, you need to get world class at digital right now, no matter what, what strategy you're going to follow. I mean, if you're if you're and I know we agree on this. If you are going to sell effectively on a marketplace, you better have world-class digital capabilities, fantastic product data, right? The ability to interface electronically with that marketplace uh, effectively and, and efficiently and accurately. And operationally, you better be as sound as anybody because if you fail on, the, on your delivery um, commitments, you're going to get kicked out of the marketplace. It's, it's a precursor to be good in digital to get into the marketplaces, Probably right. Yes, and, and but it's also I think a precursor to be digital if you're not going to participate in the marketplaces because customer expectations have just changed and no question. And so I think we, we agree on that point. So if you're not world class at digital, you got a problem. You better make sure your ERP is up to speed. You better make sure you've got the right CMS and great product data and great pricing. I mean the all, the whole technology stack uh, has to operate seamlessly in in the customer's favor. But it goes beyond that too because I would say, like, even for the distributors that you have or that, that responded to your survey that showed that they're e-commerce capable, I bet you more often than not, that e-commerce channel is the most expensive way to buy from that distributor. That if you call or if you call your salesperson in particular, you'll get a better price because distributors are trying to protect the, the margin, the ability for salespeople to mark up products by holding online prices artificially high. And I've seen this over and over again. And so I, I, I just think that's a failed strategy. I mean, if you don't have your ERP connected to your CMS and have, you know, your pricing seamless and be competitive online, if you, you know, customers are smart, they're not stupid. If they figure out that buying online is a really expensive way to buy from you, they're not going to buy online. And I've seen it over and over again. There's no question. And, and, and this is where we get into this uh, paradigm of shopping versus buying. Right that I, I think it's really imperative for distributors to create a great shopping experience. And when we say shopping, and we've done a lot of research on this, we mean how do you research, assess, evaluate a product? When we say buying, we mean transacting, purchasing, and ordering. Yeah. So in the old days, in the relatively old days, I should say, you could shop in a print catalog when those were still around. Mm -hmm. You could go online to buy. But I think to Ian's point, um, there's there's friction in the actual process of putting something in a shopping cart and checking out. It's much easier for me to send you a purchase order uh, via email, or better yet, that comes from my um, ERP system that 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 comes out to you via email than it is for me to enter enter an order in an e-commerce site. But but is, but are your kids and mine going to be willing to do that? Are they just going to insist that the shopping and buying all happen online together? Um, well, actually, the data showed, surprisingly, that your and my kids, or at least the, the generation, I won't speak about your kids or my kids specifically, um, really prefer email ordering, which is shocking because I don't know about you, trying to get an email from back from my son it only happens under threat of revocation of privilege. But there's a different persona in the B2B world. This is what our research revealed, that Gen Z, so-called Zoomers now, um, actually prefer sending orders by email, which is yeah. shocking given their, their, their personal behavior. I'm basically agreeing with you, Ian. I think, yeah. I think entering an order in an e-commerce site is cumbersome. And to your point, um, if that's going to get traction, uh, it needs to get easier and or it needs to get integrated with other e-business uh, purchasing methods. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess we'll see. I, I, I think it's. I think you're going to have to do both. I don't think the. I think the distinction. Personally, I think the distinction between shopping and buying will become increasingly difficult to uh, sustain for distributors. They're going to have to be able to transact online. Now, um, there are a couple of other tools that we started to talk about, and I want to mention them before we run out of time here. But uh, there's something called a universal shopping cart, and this has been tried for a long time, and. So I, I did quite a bit of, you know, Googling, trying to find various universal shopping carts. I found that Google's got one. But what it is, is it's, it's, a, it's a tool that resides in your web browser. And you can go shop at any number of different websites that you want, place items in this web browser-based universal shopping cart. And when you want to check out, you just put in your credit card information. And the shopping cart goes back to each of those websites and uh, does, does the transaction for you. And AI tools are really making these systems better at understanding how to do that. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a convenient notion. Now, you know, part of the benefit of a marketplace is you only have to check out once, right? So it solves part of the problem if you have sort of this browser-based virtual uh, marketplace type of shopping cart. So you could go to, you know, Granger and Ferguson and Newark Electronics and uh, Zorro and et cetera, and put a bunch of stuff in your browser-based shopping cart. And then when you check out, it'll go ahead and settle those transactions with all those websites. Now, I think, you know, that doesn't help you on the shopping side because you still have to go to multiple websites to order, but it is a pretty intriguing solution in terms of checkout, don't you think? Absolutely. I think there's a, I think there's another related one that I find also compelling, kind of another model, which is the, the one-stop shop or the so-called headless marketplace where the marketplace is sitting behind my e-commerce site. So if we're talking about Jonathan and Ian's wholesale distribution, is that, was that our new company? That is it, yeah. Jonathan is wholesale distribution has actually got access to all of the SKUs in the marketplace, but it's, it's, it's showing up as merchandise that I can sell. And I think from a, from a distributor standpoint, that is in many ways a more attractive model. Um, sure. Because um, then I'm, then I'm not in this potential race to the bottom, which is I think probably the fear of a lot of distributors as they, as they contemplate going into a marketplace. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you get some of the assortment problems solved to some degree, right? So if we, if we're an HVAC distributor and we collaborate with an electrical distributor and a plumbing distributor and we combine our assortments virtually, so the visitors to any of those three sites can search all three assortments and then check out through any of the three, right? That's the idea? Yes. Okay. So I think that's intriguing. I think it's still a disadvantage. I mean, it's important to point out that Amazon business in particular isn't just about assortment. They also have incredible credit terms, right? They've got a, a, a Amazon business credit card that gives you 5% cash back, or you can choose 90-day credit terms. And when I was in distribution, people in 90 days, we called with collections, right? They just call that a customer. 90 days is their regular terms because they've got so much cash, they can afford to do that. And from Amazon business, you can integrate into more than 70 e-procurement platforms, which is why you know Stanford, Siemens, Intel, and a bunch of other enormous organizations are choosing Amazon business because all that integration is, is seamless. So, you know, there's, there's a whole value proposition there that's tailored for big companies that, you know, is arguably has advantages for just about every, or uh, that's an overstatement, has advantages for many large e-procurement organizations, procurement organizations. Here's the beauty though of this other model, the one-stop shop, which is if I have my favorite local regional national distributor, and suddenly they have massive more assortment than they ever had. Um, that's great because I actually like this distributor to begin with. 
I'm doing other things that are that are more complex with that distributor, to your point, things that require configuration or engineering. I'm maybe also procuring services with that distributor. So I think there's some technical challenges to pulling that off. Yeah. Um, but I think from a distributor standpoint, that's a very attractive model. Yeah. So we have a couple of questions. Jason's uh, weighed in with a couple of things. One is, um, this is interesting, is the preference for email ordering, I think this, he's referring to what showed up in your survey, Jonathan, is that due in part to the tr distributor's terrible uh, experience? So in other words, is the website just so bad it's easier to order by email? So are buyers just giving up trying to find items on a distributor's site and foisting over the list of manufacturer's part numbers for the distributor to match? I think part of what's happening is that they're shopping, meaning finding what they want on a distributor's site. And mm -hmm. then they're saying, hey, it's easier for me if I just send you the PO and you have to enter the PO in your system than me going through the rigmarole of entering the order in your e-commerce site. We actually heard this from one very smart uh, distributor CIO. He just said, look, it's, it's easier for somebody to send an email. So I think there's, I think there's some... There's some of that where, yeah. to your point, Ian, they just give up and they, and they send point, the order. Yeah. But I think the other is they're shopping and then they're sending the order via email, which we, we talked to a CML, CMO a couple of years ago and he was concerned that, you know, that the e-commerce the e site, the expensive e-commerce site that they had deployed <laughs> was not getting traction. It's like, well, well, let's see how much is actually coming through email order because it might be working great. People are shopping on your site and then the order's coming in through EDI, Right. You know, punch out email ordering. Um, that's a fine thing to happen. There's, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that as an outcome. And I think we get obsessed with shopping cart revenue. And I, I've actually been a little bit guilty of pushing that over the years sure. is pushing the need to get shopping cart revenue. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's a terrible metric of success on a, on a website. I think uh, you should absolutely have fantastic shopping tools, but have a whole bunch of other value that's not related to checking out on the shopping cart as well. And, uh, you know, like metrics of success in B2B are just different, right? Like, so for example, I probably learned this from Jason Capshaw on our team, but how long someone spends on your site, you're trying to maximize that in retail. A lot of times that's a negative measurement in B2B because it proves they can't find what they're looking for. I mean, there is no recreational shopping in B2B, or if you do have people shopping rec recreationally, you should fire them, right? You're, they're supposed to be shopping as a utility to solve problems and get things done. And, you know, so you want frequency, you want people customers on your website a lot, but you don't necessarily want them there for 10 minutes at a time and checking out with one item because it meant they had a heck of a time finding it. Now, we did have another question come in. Um, uh, let, let, me, let me take that question and, and address it to you, Ian. Okay. So are e-com industrial marketplaces better built to serve the proverbial long tail customer and order size? Where are the successful distributor e-com, whereas the successful distributor e-com site will serve the critical few where there's an existing relationship between the customer and the distributor? So what do you think about this long tail customer and order size as it pertains to marketplaces? Yeah, I think it depends on how you define long tail. If you mean long tail in terms of SKUs, I think marketplaces are going to sell all the A's and B's in higher volumes than distributors do because they're simple. They don't require any expertise typically uh, to, to select them. They don't require special packaging or delivery. So I think they will have a long tail because they'll have so many SKUs but they're going to dominate the A and B SKUs. If you mean long tail in terms of customers, so which I think is how this question is, 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 is meant, then I, I think actually the big customers are going to put their simple transactions through marketplaces just like the small customers do. I don't think it's – if you're going to keep the big customers, if that's really where distributors had advantages, you wouldn't have all these massive e-procurement organizations or procurement organizations 
signing up with Amazon Business. I mean, their list of customers looks like the national of account, accounts of some of the, the nation's largest distributors of 10 years ago. And so I think the, the, the simple transactions are going to go to marketplaces. I think the complex transactions, where there's high service involved, are going to go to distributors. And for now, that's things like vending and bin replenishment and you know, uh, kitting and cutting and assembly and labeling and all that stuff. But I, I've been predict- I predicted last year, and I'll stand by it for this year, that Amazon business is going to get into vending somehow. I think they'll either buy somebody or they'll introduce their own. And the reason I say that is on the retail side, they do that, you know, for your delivery. They bought ring doorbell so they can get inside your door and deliver a package. And they work with OnStar so they can deliver a package into your car and they've got business lockers, et cetera. So in retail and on the business side, they, they, have, they have already toyed with or put in place some of these, you know, I guess now we'd call them contactless delivery, but they were just designed you know, to, so that someone didn't have to be home or at work when they deliver things. I think they're going to go farther and get into vending because it's just it's, it's the B2B side of delivering inside your foyer. So Ian, we've had we've had our little thriller in Colorado here today. Yeah, I think it'd be worth summarizing some takeaways on what on where we agree and really what it means for um, the listeners here today. Yep. So where where are the big places where we agree, and and what does this mean for our listeners? I, I think the places where we agree uh, are. One, you got to get digital. You need to be world-class at it, regardless of what the outcome is, whether you're going to sell through uh, marketplaces or you're going to compete with them or some hybrid model. If you don't have world-class technology and digital capabilities, you don't have a future. That's one. I think uh, two is that you have to have a fantastic services menu because no matter how much share marketplaces take, whether it's overwhelming like I think, or it's just, I think you would probably describe it more significant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then you, the way, one of the ways you fight that is you add value with people. Marketplaces hate including p- people in the value delivery process. It screws up the economics. They want to leverage off of a fixed cost base as their sales go up. They don't want to have people doing services. I think you've got to put in place a services strategy uh, as a barrier. And that's going to help you keep a lot of the merchandise sales because you're involved in their purchasing processes so much. And so, you know, I think those are a couple of areas where we agree. What do you? And think? then the third where we agree yeah. is you do have to have a marketplace strategy. Even right. if your marketplace strategy is yeah. we're not going to do anything until 2023, or we're right. just going to do long tail, or we're going right. to run a couple of experiments to see how this works. You have to have some marketplace strategy. You can't not respond to what's going on with marketplaces today. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Any uh, closing uh, wrap up remarks? The day is short. The work is long. I think it's really important to get moving on uh, the digital stuff that, that we've described as kind of a precursor, precursor to, be do, to be doing this. Well, we predicted in 2018 this was going to be a tipping point in terms of winner take most, winner take all. Wow, that was before COVID came along. It's only accelerating the trend. So if COVID hasn't helped you see the, how essential uh, digital is to your future, you've got to get going. And I think just related to the points we agree on, start to really clarify your marketplace strategy. Yeah, we do have one question I want to get to. Someone asked, why wouldn't the ERP just connect to a marketplace via API? This would ease ordering process with a PO. Uh, So I'm not a technology expert. I wish Jason Hine was here to answer this question. I would say that in my experience, in many cases, the applications that manage product data uh, and other aspects of search uh, are not 
connected to the ERP, they're connected to the CMS. And so the CMS is what would connect to a marketplace. I don't know, do you have a better answer than that, Jonathan? Well, I think, I think this is the one-stop shopping model that we talked about, where you have this massive assortment of available from your, your site. Oh, I see. Right. Why wouldn't the ERP just connect to a marketplace? Right. So you're talking, this is really more like um, uh, a punch-out model that connects right. to the marketplace. Is that what you're, sure. how you're reading it, Ian? Yeah, yeah, right. And Jason did answer, actually. ERPs don't store all the data needed to sell product, images, copy, et cetera. So I think I had it mostly right. Uh, look, hey, uh, this debate's going to go on for a while. You can reach out to us. We're, our, our URL for our company is distributionstrategy.com. And uh, so I'm I Heller at distributionstrategy.com. And Jonathan is J Bein, B-E-I-N, at distributionstrategy.com. Uh, you can uh, reach us there, send us questions. We will always respond. And uh, we want to thank you for participating today. It's been a lively discussion. Jonathan, it's been, uh, it's been great uh, debating and pairing with you. And uh, enjoyed the discussion as always. It's a pleasure. Upward and onward. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for sitting in on Wholesale Change. I uh, hope the rest of, the, of your week is safe and healthy. And we'll see you next Wednesday. Bye now. Bye now.